Brian, I didn't even remember it was the Super Bowl today, so thanks for that. Go Chiefs. I really wish I cared, but I just don't. Like I, every time, people are like, who do you cheer for? I used to tell people I cheered for the Browns so that no one would talk to me about football because they were just perpetually awful forever. So you'd bring that up and they'd be like, oh, I don't want to talk to you anymore. And I'd be like, perfect. So anyway, not a huge football fan, but um, I know there'll be some, some parties and things like that. So that'll be, that'll be fun. Um, this morning, we're going to be speaking out of Matthew and a few weeks ago, I preached on joy out of the first chapter of Philippians. And I made a statement um, that obviously struck a chord with some people. And it said that if you haven't experienced the type of joy that I was presenting that morning, um, then you probably hadn't have experienced true gospel friendships, relationships, or that you haven't been on mission with Jesus. And so I had a few people ask, well, what does it mean to be on mission with Jesus? And so I thought, well, that would be a good topic to take a look at. Um, this morning. And so I thought it would be good to speak on, on that text this morning. So what does it really mean to be on mission? So I have a question for you. Have you ever been driving and you see somebody you know and you're waving and you just, they just keep on going? Like you're invisible? You ever done that? You ever had that happen? So this happens to me, and it turns out that just under 10 years ago, I married one of those people. And uh, she comes by it honestly. She really does. Her father's the worst at it. Um, and so I don't know how many times I've, I've seen them in Tabor. I'm, I'm driving, and I'm waving. Like, for a while, waving. At an intersection, waving. And they just right by. And when you see people do that, sometimes you're like, what's up? Why, why are you ignoring me? Like, are you stuck up? Are you mad? Because you saw me. You had to see me. But the reality is, for them, it, it's not that they're mad or stuck up and they don't care. It's that they're on mission. They have a specific place they're getting to. And the purpose is to get from point A to point B. It's not that they don't see things around them. It's not that they're unsafe. They just don't really care about the things outside of where they're going, right? The object is to get to the destination. And each of us are a little bit like this in different things. Maybe you're not like that when you drive. Maybe you're someone who likes to look around and see things. Maybe you're one of those people that sees something on the highway and you drive slow down to like 40 and hold up all the traffic because you're rubbernecking. Um, Maybe. But we have other things in life where we're on mission, where we're really driven to be like, oh, I need to get this done. I want to do this. And it kind of consumes what we're doing. It's like getting to point A from point B. And we, we, we're very intentional in the task and being on a mission to accomplish it. So our text this morning is, is the Great Commission verse, and it's one of, probably one of my favorite texts to preach on. So Jesus has been to the cross and has been resurrected by the power of the Spirit. And now has been appearing to his disciples. And he set this meeting with his disciples in Galilee. And as the eleven meet with him, Jesus gives instruction for what is to come next now. What is their purpose as he now departs? What is their mission? What is our mission? So I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 to 20. This is what it says. 
Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Chapter 28 is the conclusion of, of Matthew's narrative on Jesus. A narrative that started with Jesus' birth and continued through his life. His teaching, his miracles, his death, and then here in chapter 8, his resurrection. So now in the final verse of Matthew's gospel, we come to the Great Commission. This commission is given to his disciples and then to all followers of Jesus who come after them. And these verses are, are very well potentially the, the climax and major focal point for the gospel, and maybe all of scripture. See, the Old Testament is filled with prophecy and expectation of a coming king. And then the New Testament begins with the birth of this king. Then this king preaches the forgiveness of sins and performs miracles and great teachings. He then willingly goes to the cross to die for the sins of all mankind. And just when the story seems to be over, he is gloriously resurrected three days later. And in the midst of this, in the amazement of the resurrected Christ, we find ourselves at the end of Matthew 28 and realize Jesus is just getting started. Verse 16 and 17 show us that the disciples gather where Jesus has told them to meet. And in verse 17, Matthew says, when they saw Jesus, they worshipped and some doubted. It's worth noting that this is still fresh to these 11. And it's 11 because Judas is gone now. But the resurrected Christ is right before them, and so they, they worship him because they see this amazing thing in front of them, but there's still some doubt there. And some have criticized the reality of how, how, could, the, how could the disciples doubt this resurrected Jesus? Well, I think there's a little bit of natural rea- reality to that doubt of, okay, this person was dead and now they're alive, even though they've seen that before in Lazarus. But regardless of their momentary doubts, each one of these men were faithful to the end. Most of them to martyrdom. The next verses give us three implications for followers of Jesus and how do we live out Jesus' mission. Verses 18, 19, and 20. And we're going to look at each one of them individually because I think that each one is important. But we're going to do it a little bit in, in backwards order. So we're going to start with 18, then we're going to jump to 20, and then we're going to come back to 19. Because there's a command in the mid of, middle of this commission, but for us to really understand and live out the command, we must acknowledge and understand verse 18 and 20 very well. So as we begin, what does it mean to be on mission with Jesus? So first, is that we believe in the claim of Christ's authority. Verse 18 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. As Jesus gathers his disciples, he doesn't start with a command for his followers. He starts with a claim. This isn't about him telling them what they need to do. He's saying, here's who I am. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And here we see the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy as he spoke about a son of man in Daniel chapter 17. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will be destroyed will not be destroyed. Jesus' authority is the basis for everything else that follows in our text this morning. 
His authority over heaven and earth means that Jesus is not just our personal Lord and Savior over us. And we speak often of our, of our personal relationship with Jesus, about our conversion stories, about our experiences with Jesus. And, and it's right for us to do this, but we also must acknowledge that Christ has a greater lordship overall. Christ is the Lord over all things. Regardless of whether some recognize him as Lord or not, our recognition that Jesus is Lord brings our lives under his lordship. But he is Lord over all creation and all things. I don't decide to make Jesus Lord. He is Lord regardless. Paul speaks to this in Philippians 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, as he says, all authority, what does all authority mean? What does it look like? Well, Piper puts it this way. All authority. He has authority over Satan and all demons, over all angels, good and evil, over the natural universe, natural objects and laws and forces, stars, galaxies, planets, meteorites, authority over all weather systems, winds, rains, lightning, thunder, hurricanes, tornadoes, monsoons, typhoons, Cyclones, authority all over all of their effects, tidal waves, floods, fires, authority over all molecular and atomic realities, atoms, electrons, protons, neutrons, undiscovered subatomic particles, quantum physics, genetic structures, DNA, chromosomes, authority over all plants and animals, great and small, whales and redwoods, giant squids and giant oaks, all fish, all wild beasts, all invisible animals and plants, bacteria, viruses, parasites, germs, Authority over all the parts of the functions of the human body, every beat of the heart, every breath of the diaphragm, every electrical jump across a million synapses in our brains. Authority over all nations and governments, congresses and legislatures and presidents and kings and premiers and courts. Authority over all armies and weapons and bombs and terrorists. Authority over all industry and business and finance and currency. Authority over all entertainment and amusement and leisure and media. Over all education and research and science and discovery. Authority over all crime and violence. Over all families and neighborhoods and over the church. And over every soul and every moment of every life that has ever been and ever will be lived. There is nothing in heaven or on earth, over which Jesus does not have authority. That is, does not have the right and the power to do with as he pleases. Both the right and the power. The scope and the magnitude of the authority of Jesus is infinite because Jesus is one with God the Father. The Father has given him all authority, not because the Father can give up being God, but because Jesus is God. And when deity shares infinite authority with deity, He neither loses nor gains anything, but remains infinitely full and triumphant and all-sufficient. Jesus has all authority. Obedience to the Great Commission is not a man-made program built on your own ability or your own power. It's Jesus' authority that propels us to go. It's his authority that gives us confidence to go. We serve a powerful, able king who fills us with purpose. And he fills us with all that is needed to make his kingdom known in us and through us. And it's knowing Jesus and the authority that he has that fuels our desire for his mission, to be on mission with him. We want people to know and experience the life-changing reality and the transformation that Jesus brings in our lives. To know the one who spoke the earth into motion the one who gives everlasting hope, the one who forgives, the one who brings purpose to this life and to experience a love that is like nothing we can find anywhere else in our lives. 
The goal is to see others live of a growing worship in Jesus. This is to be our desire as the church. We know the gospel saves. We are evidence of it. This room is full of that testimony. Jesus' authority guarantees that the mission of Jesus to make disciples won't fail. But will you walk in it? Will you walk out the mission he calls all of us into? We are on the front lines of spiritual battle that is raging for the souls of men and women all around the world. In this town, in your family, your friends, your co-workers, those are some of them. But we serve a king who has the authority and power to see this commission completed through his people. So the first thing we must understand is that we must believe in the claim of Christ's authority. That he is above all. That he has power over all. When we want to live out his mission. The second thing is that we depend on the comfort of Christ's presence. If you jump to the second part of verse 20, it says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The final words of the gospel are comforting and encouraging. They remind us that we can depend on the presence of Christ when we walk out the mission as his followers. They also remind us of Matthew's description of Jesus in the first chapter of the gospel. It says, See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. So it's fitting that Matthew ends with this declaration from the Lord. So in knowing this declaration of Jesus, we can be encouraged that this mission of Jesus isn't based on who or what you and I can do. The mission is assured based on Christ's presence through his Holy Spirit. And this is essential. This mission is not accomplished through those who just simply know Christ, who have submitted to his lordship. Um, They are people who are filled with the Spirit. That's a mark of, of a disciple, someone who is filled with the Spirit of God. It doesn't matter how gifted you are, how much money you have, how opinionated you are, or even how theologically minded you are. Because the people of God can do nothing apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. But when the Spirit works among people, a family, a town, a nation, can be changed for the glory of God. We can't forget that. Because we can have lots of strategies and lots of things and meetings and ideas, but without the Spirit leading us, empowering us, we can do nothing of spiritual value. So rather than being based on what we can do, this mission is based on who Jesus is and what he's able to do in and through our lives. As Paul says in Ephesians, Christ is able to do beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. So as we walk in the mission, we walk in confidence knowing we aren't alone. Jesus is with us. And in the difficulty and the fear and the times it feels like nothing is happening, Jesus calls us to be obedient and faithful to him and we depend on him as he works out the mission in and through us. So now, as we've covered those two things, we can move on to the command part. But it's important to start where we did. This command comes from the one who holds all authority in his hands. He conquers death and promises that we will as well. This is the Savior King that is instructing us in this command. He is loving and gentle, full of grace. But he is not weak or timid or without the power to accomplish what he promises. And as we walk out this command, this mission, we don't go alone. He is present. He is faithful. He is God with us. It's not based on us, but Christ in us. So the third thing is, is that we obey the command 
to make disciples. Verse 19 to 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Let me start by saying that this isn't a comfortable call. This is not an invitation for Christians to come and be baptized and then sit in one location. Yet this is exactly what the church in North America has turned into. We come to worship service, we participate in the life of church, serve in the church, write checks, all while neglecting to make disciples. And I know that sounds a bit harsh, yet all of those things I listed, they are important, but only if we are on mission in doing them. That's the thing. The church is supposed to be about the mission of Christ, and everything we do is to point to that mission and being obedient to it. But often we trade that obedience for comfort or just spiritual busyness with little productivity and call it good. And we have to be careful of this reality in the church because it's quite rampant. So this mission is not a call to comfort. It's also not a call to overseas missions, though it could be. Often the Great Commission has been taught as a, as a missionary verse. If to do the Great Commission means you need to move to some country, somewhere around the world, and be a missionary. Overseas missions are not the only way to accomplish discipleship, and they're not the context of, of this verse. And of course, it's true that the Great Commission brings in the reality of reaching all nations, and we'll talk about that. But this is not simply a call just to missions. The reality is that the Great Commission is for each believer, and that some believers will potentially be called overseas or to the mission field. But when Jesus says go, the context is as you go. So in everything you do, as you go, make disciples. As you go to work, as you go to your meeting, as you go to school, as you go to church, whatever it is, as you go, make disciples. And that is the call to all believers. If you are called to the mission field, you are called to make disciples as you go about your day on the mission field. Just as those who are here today are called to make disciples as they go. So if the Great Commission is not a call to comfort, like we've turned into, and it's not a call for Christians to go overseas, what is it? What it is is a costly command that directs each follower of Jesus to go, baptize, and make disciples. And this is the plan from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Matthew chapter 4 tells us Jesus' initial introduction to the, to the disciples was, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus made it clear that those who would follow him, their mission would be to fish for men. So Matthew 28 serves as a fitting conclusion to this. Jesus' introduction in Matthew 4, every follower of Jesus is a fisher of men. Jesus' conclusion in Matthew 28, every disciple is a disciple maker. And according to Jesus, from beginning to end, to be a disciple is to make disciples. And the New Testament seems to know nothing of disciples who aren't making disciples. So biblically, what does it look like to make disciples? There's lots of different people who have lots of different opinions and share lots of different things. Discipleship is a rather popular thing right now. There's lots of books on it. Um, David Platt shares four non-negotiable facets of disciple-making out of Matthew 28. And though um, I would not agree with everything um, about David Platt and his uh, passion towards this topic. I think these titles are good. 
And they are share the word, show the word, teach the word, and serve the world. And so we're going to use these headings as we talk about verse 19 and 20. First is we share the word. As followers of Jesus, we must speak the gospel. Not saying to teach the gospel yet. We speak the gospel as we strive to live according to the gospel. Acts 1 tells us that the Spirit of God dwells in believers so we can bear witness to the gospel. Christ has given us the Spirit so that we can bear witness of the gospel to the world. Not so that we can cover it or hide it or meet together by ourselves and and not be around our community, our world. We are to bear witness to the gospel. People are to see the gospel in us through our speech, through our lives, through our actions. The evangelistic strategy of the church is built on every member of the church engaging the world with the gospel and speech and life. So this is something that is to be done in every walk of our life. We share the word in our speech. We share the word in how we live. It comes out in conversation. Maybe not specifically in the actual words of scripture, word for word, but in the way that we do things, in the way that we approach things, the integrity that we'd have in our, in our workplaces, the kindness that we'd have towards people, the opportunity to be the example of forgiveness and bearing with one another that we can with our community. We are to be salt and light in the world, people who are different than our culture, image bearers of Jesus to all people, So striving to live lives of obedience to Jesus is one of the ways that we share the word. Part of my journey standing here today is because someone shared the word with me by how they talked and lived their life. And I still needed to learn what the gospel was and I still needed to accept that gospel. I needed teaching and other things, but that was the start. Someone sharing the word through their life brought me to a place that I was interested in who Jesus was. Don't underestimate that. Don't underestimate the influence that you can have by simply just living in obedience to Jesus. So that's the first thing. The second is that we show the word. It speaks that, about baptism. And baptism is part of what it means to make disciples because baptism symbolizes identification with the person of Christ and our confession to live for him. It also identifies us as people of Christ in the church. Now I'm going to say some things about baptism that might bother you, so just get ready. We have over-spiritualized baptism in so many ways in North America. We've created a a, a system of, you need to arrive somewhere to be baptized. You accept Christ, and then eventually you can arrive somewhere to be baptized. That's not biblical. It's not in the Bible. It's, I accept Christ, I see him as Lord, and I'm baptized because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of this king. I want to identify with Jesus. I want people to know that I identify with Jesus. Because I believe in him, and I trust him, and I want to follow him. I was having this conversation with two young men in my house the other night who are not baptized. One of them should have been baptized years ago. We had this conversation about what does it look like to, A, think about baptism, but also it's very possible that when we become a Christian and we're, we're not wanting to get baptized, or we're not walking down the road, that we live in disobedience. To Christ. And we've kind of fostered that. Oh, just get baptized when you're ready. I did that. I didn't get baptized. Finally, one of my mentors came to me before I went to Bible college to be a pastor and was like, you're getting baptized before you leave. 
for Bible college. So that summer, I got put in the river. I had my own warped, warped perception of baptism. Baptism is one of the ways that we show the word. It's the public recognition of the gospel at work in people. Now, we need to be serious about baptism. We shouldn't simply just be baptizing people because they want to. They need to understand what is baptism. Are they saved? Have they given their life to Jesus? Is there evidence of that fruit in their life? Those are all important things. But if you believe in Jesus, if he is the king, if he is your savior and you want to follow him, it's time to get baptized. So if that's you, come talk to me after service. Baptism is important because it shows that we belong to Christ. So first, it's a declaration to Christ of our desire to live for him. But secondly, it's done in the front of witnesses. I don't know if you know this, but it's really hard to baptize yourself. That's called a bath. It's meant to be done in front of people. Usually at least with one other person. But it's, it's most fitting to be done in front of the, the church that you belong to. Why? Because it's an encouragement of what God has done in your life to the people watching, but it's also a sense of accountability and identification saying, I want to live for Jesus. I want to be part of this family. Help me to live like Jesus. It's our profession of faith, what God has done in a person's life. So baptism is an important part of discipleship and as, it's, and <clears throat> as it is about sharing the word. The next part of showing the word, after someone has accepted Christ and is baptized, this is the initial part of their spiritual journey, is that we need to build relationships. Showing the word involves doing life together. Disciple making is not simply what happens in a church service or a classroom for each week. It's what happens when you walk through life together as a community of faith. Modeling for one another how to follow Christ. Often this is best done in smaller groups where we get to show one another how to pray, how to study God's word, how to grow in Christ, support each other, encourage each other, cheer each other on in the pursuit of the mission of Jesus in our lives and the things he's calling us to. Relationship is essential to discipleship. Jesus modeled this with his disciples. They did everything together. Eat, travel, serve, These 11 men at this meeting with him are intimate friends of his. And it's important that this is active and modeled in our lives. We cannot call ourselves disciples if we're not discipling people. And sometimes there's this perception that we uh, just have to wait. We wait and eventually maybe we'll, we'll disciple somebody. All of you have relationships. And we're going to talk about teaching the word and how that's worked out. But we all have relationships. We have opportunity to be someone who can disciple or be mutually discipled or be discipled by by somebody else. This is the call to the church. Relationships are key. Relationships are key within the church to help us grow in our faith. They're key in the world. Most of the times when I've been able to share my faith have not been because people have walked into my office and said, hey, I don't know anything about Jesus. Can you tell me about Jesus? I'm just telling you, that doesn't happen. It's usually from being involved in something in the community where I've built a relationship with someone and says, hey, you're a pastor. Tell me about that. Why do you believe that? Why are you a pastor? Why do you have a personal faith? And I get to share about why I love Jesus, why I believe in him, and why I do what I do. But that comes 
almost always through some kind of relationship. We need to have deep relationships in the church with people that help us grow in our faith, that we share the word with. We need to have relationships with people in our town and in the world that we have opportunity where we can share our faith, share life with, so that we might show Christ to them. And in doing so, we have opportunity to encourage and disciple there as well. Third, we teach the word. So we teach others to observe all that Christ has commanded us. As followers of Christ, we receive the word through our own personal study, which is probably the most important place. Some people would tell you that the most important place for study is here on Sunday mornings. Well, that's only so many Sundays, or so many days a year. Most people don't come to church every Sunday. So if you're depending only on your pastors for spiritual nourishment, I would very much encourage you to start looking at what it looks like to read through your devotions each day. If you've never done that, start small. Start with a a daily bread. We have those in the lobby. Look up other possible Bible study options. There's many options out there. There's video series. There's things you can read. Open your Bible and, and begin to read. You don't have to read full chapters or full books. Read a few verses. Ask what God is teaching you out of that. How can you apply it to your life? The most important place for our spiritual development of teaching the word is in our own homes, in our own private times. And then in our small groups or Bible studies that we are part of, these are intimate and important because we are teaching the word together with other people. And then, of course, through our sermons on Sundays. All of those things work together. But this isn't where it ends. We are to reproduce the word. God has certainly appointed some to be teachers, elders particularly, But all of us are to reproduce the word of God and to be able to give account for the hope that we have in Christ. And often when it comes to the mission of discipleship, we are content to let pastors take care of this part. Well, pastors are supposed to teach. But that's not how the Great Commission reads. This command is for all of us, all of you. We are to teach others to observe what Christ has commanded. Christ commands us to love God And love others as ourselves. Every teaching of Jesus, every single one is summed up in those commands. So as we teach others all of the things that Jesus has taught, all the things that he's commanded, we filter through those two commands. We ask, how does this help us love God and be more obedient to him? How does it help us make him first and great in our lives? And how does this help me love others more like I love myself? And we actively walk this out in three ways. First is by teaching and explaining the word to someone for the first time. That's one of the ways that we teach the word, is we are teaching the word, explaining things in the Bible to someone who's interested, who's never heard it before, or has no idea or concept around it. The second is by walking along beside someone who we can mentor or encourage in the word, where we can encourage them in study or help them along or give them insights, help help to keep them accountable, help to keep them learning, help to encourage them that, or flip that by being someone who is mentored or is being discipled by someone else. And the third way is by walking with somebody who you mutually can encourage and teach in the word and grow together. All three of these things should be areas that every follower of Jesus can teach the word in. So as essential as relationships are to discipleship, so is the teaching of the word. The word being taught in our lives is vital in helping us grow spiritually. You will not grow spiritually without the word of God. It is not possible. You can serve, 
You can give all the money you want. You can do all the things. But unless the word of God is engaged in your life in a deep, meaningful way, you will not grow spiritually. And we are meant to do that together with other people. It's not to be a a lone thing, alone. It's fine to have personal study times, but it's good to be challenged and encouraged in the things that we're learning together and talk about that with other people. The fourth thing is that we serve the world. Jesus speaks about making disciples of all nations. And this phrase in its original context refers not simply to nations or countries, but rather to tribes, families, clans, and peoples. The Old Testament refers to such people groups, the Amorites, Hittites, uh, the Canaanites, etc. And today there are more than 11,000 people groups spread throughout the world. And it's believed that there's still around 5,000 to 6,000 people groups who have still not been reached with the gospel. On top of this, over 3 billion lives live on less than $2 a day. $2 a day. And a billion of those live in desperate poverty. Hundreds of millions are starving and dying of preventable diseases. And yet the spiritual condition of the world is even worse. Billions of people across the globe are engrossed in false religions. And an estimated 2 billion haven't had the chance to hear the gospel. So though the Great Commission isn't about missions, supporting those that are on the mission field, championing them and discipling others who may answer that call to missions is an important part of the Great Commission being lived out. So the command is, as you go about your day and all that you do, make disciples. And this is the end goal. For people to continually grow in their faith, where we see spiritual movement in believers' lives. This happens in relationship. It happens by people walking alongside other people. I can count probably five people who discipled me at different times in my life. I still have people that I consider mentors. Mutual mentors, mentors that are people that I see as wiser, more educated, smarter, people that live godly examples in my life. We all need that. We need to be discipled so that we can disciple. So this happens in relationship. It's biblical. It's crystal clear when we read the gospel. And the example of Jesus that his mission is to be lived out through relationships. So we baptize them that they might identify with Jesus and his people. We teach them to obey Christ's commands so that they may know what is true and experience love, joy, and purpose. And that this command is for everyone, every believer, everywhere. Finally, I would say this when it comes to the mission of Jesus. And I think it might be more important than a lot of the things I've said because it really comes down to the crux of this. To live out the mission of Jesus, we must be willing to sacrifice. And this is at the heart of the matter of North American Christianity. It's our comfort. We don't always care to model the word. We see relationships in which we could be sharing the gospel or walking beside people or helping others grow in their faith as burdens, as burdensome. I don't have time for that. I have all these other important things to do. I don't have time for these relationships. These burdens that take away from our schedule and our comfort and our routines. 
So instead of teaching others to obey all that Christ has commanded, we farm that responsibility out to programs and ministries in the church and then complain that they don't make enough disciples. Where are all the disciples? Where are the leaders? Where are those that would help to share the gospel? It's important as we think about the mission of Jesus to remember who has the authority. To make disciples, it doesn't come from a human effort. And you must first acknowledge the authority of Jesus. Because if you don't, you will never make disciples. I would argue that without acknowledging the authority of Jesus in your life, you will not grow spiritually. You will not desire to grow spiritually. Your time is his. Your money is his. Every gift, passion, the things that he has given you, they're his. When he has lordship in our lives. We can't just be a people that gives him what's left over. He must be first. If he isn't, we'll never make disciples. We'll never reach the world. Because Jesus isn't our master then. We can only serve one. And discipleship, the spiritual growth of people, is the heartbeat of Christ. Again, this is the climax of scripture. All of this stuff has happened. Salvation of sins. Resurrection glorious. Promise that we will also be resurrected when we accept Christ. And then Christ says, by the way, all of this has happened because I have this mission. I want to reach the world. This isn't a mission for Galilee or Jerusalem or the nation of Israel. I want to reach everybody. The spiritual growth and maturity of people is the heartbeat of Christ. The command has never been to go tell people about Jesus or invite them to church and hope they figure it out. The person of Jesus was all about discipleship. And that evidence is in his three years of ministry and in these final words to the eleven. So we have to recognize that authority. Is he number one? Is he king? Is he Lord? Is his way is my way? Is the things that are most important to Jesus most important to me? Or are they secondary things? Tertiary things? Is Jesus just somebody I I come to when I have a little bit of time left over? Or is he number one? Am I passionate about the things that that he's passionate about? Do the things that break his heart break my heart? Do I see people as an opportunity To know and love Jesus more? Is there somebody that I can walk beside? Or maybe I'm somebody who needs someone to walk beside me. We must also recognize that it's Jesus' work in you as you go. You can go and have good friendships. You have coffee, maybe you have a lunch, maybe you go do fun things. But it's the Spirit of God that brings out the spiritual reality that prompts us to speak into the times where people's hearts are open to hear the gospel. We need that. We need the power of the Spirit working in us. It's Him that works it out. Spiritual progress, spiritual breakthrough happens through prayer and the power of the Spirit in us. We can't forget that. That doesn't mean that we get to sit at home all day and just pray and hope that something happens because you are the hands and feet of Jesus. When we are praying for things, we should be willing to be active in things. But we must recognize it's not going to be by your strategies and the things that you do. It's by the things of Christ. That's why the word of God must be engaged in how we do this. 
that we must pray, that we must model the gospel. It's all central to these relationships we need to build with people. And then as we recognize those things, we can start to walk out the command that Jesus has for us in making disciples. So to be on mission with Jesus means to be a passionately growing disciple who acknowledges all of who Jesus is and what he commands and relies on his power to reach and disciple others. This is the mission of Jesus. To be a passionate, growing disciple, someone who is in love with Jesus and wants to make Jesus known. I hope this is your prayer. Because this is the purpose of the church. It's the purpose of every church. Whether they recognize it or not, it is the purpose of the people of God. This is the commission. The commission is to go and make disciples, and the commission stands until it is completed, which it's clearly not, or till the person who made the commission decommissions it. And that won't happen until he returns. So this is still plan A. This is still the purpose of the church. So, my encouragement to you this morning. For many of us, we recognize the truth and the biblical reality of Jesus' words in the Great Commission. But that's not the problem. The problem is our busyness, our priorities, the things that we allow to get in the way, because they're not all bad things. Our families, some of our hobbies, our interests, serving in the church, those aren't all bad things. But I can imagine that if you're like me, there's probably things that at times you need to reprioritize. We use the word that I'm just too busy to that. You're not too busy. You're busy with your priorities. The things that you're busy with are the things that are most important to you. Some of those are probably idols, if I'm going to be honest. Because I know some of the things for me are probably idols at times. So we have to reorient and reevaluate the things that take up our time, the things that are most important. And so I would encourage you this morning, as you leave this place, as you think through some of the words that are spoken, as you eat snacks and, and watch the Super Bowl before you take your nap, you laugh because it's true. What are some of the ways that Jesus might be calling you to step out and make disciples? To step out of the comfort that prevails our Christian society so much. Are you willing to walk out what he has for you? Maybe there's some things that he's been convicting you of that need to change. Maybe there's been people that he's pressed on your heart and you've said, ah, I guess I could do that, but I don't really want to. Friends, I want to share with you that my greatest joy in following Jesus is in the people that I've got to disciple. It's my greatest joy. I was at a, Heather and I were at a wedding in December uh, with a young man who was part of our youth when we first moved here. Good kid, grew up kind of, kind of like the, grew up in the church, but wasn't super like obedient, um, typical teenage boy, kind of dumb. And watching his life grow and transpire, went through cancer, went through a whole year of just darkness with that. And it was super encouraging and enjoyable to sit there as he gets married as a 26, 27-year-old and remember him as a 13-year-old and looking at him and saying, I can see the man that God could grow you into. And then to be there and witness that and know that 
I didn't have the full part in that. I had a few years that I'm not sure he listened to me. But walking with these people and seeing where God will bring them, that's discipleship. Walking with people and lovingly influencing them for Christ. It's the greatest joy that you will experience. So if you're looking to grow in your joy, like we talked about a few weeks ago, have a desire to make disciples. Because there is an immense joy in that. There is an immense joy in walking along people and seeing them know Christ more and deeper and growing in their faith. And I promise you, this is the mission of Jesus. He's already at work in this. It's not like we're waiting for Jesus to do something. He's waiting for you to come along with him. And so my encouragement to you is, who is somebody that I could disciple? Who is someone that you could disciple? Sorry. Where is someone that you can connect to grow to be a more passionate growing disciple? My encouragement to you is to wrestle through this today a little bit. Take some time, maybe half an hour, 15 minutes. Pray, read some scripture, and consider the ways that God might be calling you to step out deeper in your faith. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your love for the church. We recognize the task that you've given us is not easy. But we also acknowledge that we serve the one with all of the authority over heaven and earth. You are God with us. We are not alone in this. And Father, we repent of our comfort and of our lives being God, would your spirit melt through our hearts that maybe have grown cold to your passion. Maybe be your hands and feet. Maybe we have a passion to reach the lost, a passion to help grow the next generation, a passion for our brothers and sisters to know you more. May we be people of grace and forgiveness, people that help each other along in the pursuit of you and the mission of you. Father, would this church be passionate about missions? Those that are reaching lost people. Help us to champion those people and encourage them, but also help us to be people who make disciples here in this place. And so we commit this to you. Would you help us to grow in this area and challenge us in our spirits today as we take time to reflect on this? We pray this in your name. Amen.